Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm welcoming back Sandy Wallace. Sandy. Hello, thanks for having me back. Oh, it's a delight, it's a delight. Now, Sandy Wallace is a crime writer and she's back and has a line in her book, Into the Fog, about Cape Granada. Now, I can't sing very well. Murder, father. No, uh, hello, hello, mother, hello, father. Here we are in Camp Granada. Life is camp is very entertaining if it would stop raining. So, Into the Fog is set in a kids' camp. Now, this group of kids is a bit different. Yes, it's a small group of children from Dalesford that they're doing it tough for various reasons. And so the local police have decided to give them and their parents uh, a bit of a break and just take them away from their home environments and, and hopefully also form some bonds between the kids that might actually each help them when they do go back home as well. Have you mentioned the local police? Yes, the local the police are actually in Dalesford, so you know they're not local to where the camp is. They, they're taking them 200 kilometres away to the Dandenong Ranges. Oh, no, we've met some of these police before. Georgie, um, John Franklin. Hmm, tell us a bit about them. Well, Georgie's a journalist from Melbourne. Uh, she's fallen into the role of investigative journalist along the way through each of the, my books. This is the third time we see our two uh, stars back. So, uh, And John Franklin is a senior constable in at Dalesford, and he's got ambitions to trade up from uniform to detective. So at the moment, he's actually seconded to Ballarat, so on a part-time secondment. So he's stuck well away from the camp, unfortunately, when it all happens. And, uh, you know, he's furthering his ambition, but it's on, he's on a rather boring surveillance operation when, when they're off at the camp. And one of the teen teenagers there is uh, quite, um, well, who is she? Cat. Cat is Franklin's you know, uh, daughter. So she's she also wants to, when she finishes up with school, her plans are to follow in her father's footsteps. So she's one of the supervisors on the camp. She's bridging the gap between, she and another teenager are bridging the gap between the older supervisors, the police and Georgie, which is the journalist, and, and the young children that are on the camp. And so this other one is Josh. That's right. Uh, Josh is, uh, he's been a troubled youth himself. That's right. He's, yes. he's part of the, the boxing gym. That's right. Right, yes, which which does is a recurring thing. We 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 learn a little bit more about the boxing studio in Dalesford over each of the, the books, and yeah, Josh is one of the instructors or coaches with the, with the boxing gym. So yeah. there's Sam. He's she's a new constable in uh, Dalesford, an older constable, Tim, and the camp Sylvan instru- in, instructor Seb. That's right. They're all there. And especially Georgie. Now, she was there, and this is a quote from the book, because remember, she's the journalist. She was hoping to get the kids to express themselves through words instead of internalising their troubles. That's right. Yeah, it's an important thing. I mean, each of the others had a more physical sort of role. You know, they were going to be doing a bit of the outdoor activities, boxing, maybe things like that. But uh, her, her role was quite different. So, mm. yeah. so where's camp? 
up in Mount Dandenong, my hometown actually this time. So with some action back in Dalesford over the course of, of, the, of the story. But, yeah, the main part, action is home. So, yeah. In a big house, a really beautiful house. And we wonder why the, um, the owner of the house is allowing this kind of strange group of people to live there. And he and his wife have just disappeared. And, of course, the, the land borders on the National Park. There's kind of an unfriendly caretaker and a very pregnant housekeeper. That's right. So you've got this isolation. Yes. And then, as I said, the, the title of the book is Into the Fog. So it's bad weather. They, they're often the key factors in making a good detective story. <laughs> so what happens? All right. Would you like me to give you a snippet here? Well, that's the weather. Oh, yes. 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 Well, the weather, the, the it's unexpected ha- you know, weather event. As we get from time to time in Victoria where they really just can't predict what's coming and all of a sudden we're in this worst scenario. So, so yeah. why are the police worried? What happens there? Three kids. Come on, you got to fess up. <laughs> it's on the front cover. <laughs> well, three kids disappearing into the fog in a very, very wild storm with worse conditions ahead isn't a great scenario. And, if, you know, if you're bordering on a national park and you can imagine that's stunning in great weather but treacherous and very difficult to search in the sort of conditions that they're facing. So, of course, there's uh, some few, a few mobile messages going back to John Franklin in mm-hmm. Ballarat uh, from his well, from his new relationship, yes. being uh, Georgie and his daughter Kat, saying, "Yeah, oh, we've got problems." So, and also as, Sam too. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, John decides that it's Thursday. He's going to take a sickie, <laughs> which becomes a very important. Well, he he, he well, gets known. Yes, yeah. And well, he feels responsible. He knows these kids, so he really can't sit sit there, you know, unjustified to him that he wouldn't be part of a search. So yeah. yeah. So you know, you wonder, well, why don't they call in the locals? And from page twenty seven. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Trees down, roads cut off by flooding, or a car down a ditch because low cloud, landslides, a house that's literally slipped down the hill by two metres with a family inside. In his words, everything's urgent, very urgent or critical. We basically fit into the middle category. Bad enough because kids are involved, but not as obviously life-threatening as other emergencies they're dealing with. So we'll have to wait our turn. So, of course, you know, they, they have to first work out whether it's runaways the kids just have run away or That's hostages. Right. Or they lured away. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is another quote. Is it mischief, a game? Have they nicked off or were they lured away? Mm. So the three kids, Hannah. Yes. Uh, was the big sister. She yes. was 12. She's 12, yes. Right, And the two brothers, Riley and Cooper. That's right. But they oh, And they find out that Hannah's run away before. So that's, you know, yeah. that's a bit of a... Mm, yes, mm. yeah. And the whole thing, you know, sort of isolate, bad weather, when to notify the parents. Well, it's a, it's a tricky call, isn't it? You know, like as soon as they hear the news, they're going, they're, you would imagine they're going to be in their car, they're going to be you know, adding to this, the, the danger, really, of the, to themselves, to other people, if they're rushing, if they're, if they're panicked. So, you know, you, you would want to... 
at least have a bit of a search before you, you do go to that step. Yeah. But at some point, of course, you can't avoid. You're mandated to advise them. And and when do you bring in the media? Yes. Well, they're a curse and, and also a blessing in an investigation, aren't they? You know, it, it, it sometimes makes it very difficult because everything then or a lot of things are in now in the public domain, so it's harder to trip someone up or to get, you know, to you know lead them to admissions and things. So, yeah. And the amount of time it takes to follow up all those leads. All, that it, you, oh. all those dead ends. Look, this is a book a lot about police procedure. The amount of cross-checking done by police on everybody, mm. the soon-to-be stepfather, the, the, the birth father, and which led you into researching the Rodeo circuit. <laughs> well, you just <laughs> never know where you're going to end you, up you in don't. a crime book. <laughs> of all very cleverly detailed, the work involved and the mm. frustrations the police have. Yes, definitely. So, but when do the local police have to hand over? So let's hear from page 103. Okay, sure. You do realise that none of you can be part of this investigation. Everyone snapped erect. Franklin objected no way and Sam reeled. The very people responsible for Hannah, Riley and Cooper when they disappeared cannot be allowed near this case. Jules cringed and held up her hands, quietening the uproar. You all seem like good people and you're probably good at your jobs too, but I can't jeopardise the integrity of the inquiry. Yes, so they are all told, all of these yep, police, that's go right. home. Yes, yes the, the Yarra, Yarra Rangers detectives have taken over. Yes, mm, And how do they feel about that? Relieved? Uh, no. no. <laughs> they feel that they, they, you know, they're fully responsible for these children and they, they just... They're not going to be pushed aside. So they'll actually run an unsanctioned investigation and that will have some consequences Ooh, for them. Absolutely. We also read directly about what's happening and it's terrifying reading. Whose voice have you written that, the italics, in, in, in the, through the book? Through the book. It's the person that's telling that scene. So we're, we're in, in that scene with them. With, with yeah. Hannah. And with the, Hannah, with Sam, with Franklin yeah. and with Georgie at different times. Yeah, And it's especially when when Hannah's voice is out there mm. and we know that the police have just driven past where she may yeah, be. That's oh. right. Yes. <laughs> um, it's Georgie with her investigative, investigative journalist hat on who sees a possible link to another girl's death. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes, a recent disappearance. So one, another girl that's disappeared about four months ago, actually quite close by. Mm. Mm. Now, uh, the book takes place over four days mm -hmm. and it's the grand final weekend yes who are the teams playing in the grand final well this goes back a couple of years it was uh, Geelong and Collingwood oh. <laughs> now, that was yes I, I thought it might have been set in the future and I was going to say that was the, no, uh, the, no. the only unrealistic thing about the whole book Look, no. you've given us a little bit of light romance light re feeling through book mm. because of George and John's relationship John Franklin yeah. Yeah. Uh, it especially comes under stress when AJ, yes, her partner, right. for many years returns from Hong Kong. Yes. Well, that's right. I mean, this, uh, Georgie and Franklin already have, you know, difficulties. You know, they're, they're both career-driven. They One's a city dweller, one's a country dweller. They already have, you know, barriers to their relationship. Um, and then the ex-boyfriend rocking back up from Hong Kong Actually, right in the middle of all of this, you know, investigation, it's not great timing and puts another strain on them when they, they really just can't afford to have any distractions. So, yeah. But when they did see each other, quote, 
their kiss fired like a smooth scotch. I do like my scotch. <laughs> Look, what you do bring in here is the importance of uh, police procedure in following all the clues, going through all the computer stuff. Mm, mm, it was it was actually a very interesting scenario to do research on. It was one where I needed a little bit more assistance from the police and police media are excellent with, with uh, some of my questions in just making sure I get that procedure spot on. I mean, there's a certain amount you get from research and knowledge you've picked over, up over years, but then there's just some very specifics in this case which I needed to very much understand myself and then dilute down enough that it wasn't going to bog down the flow of the story too, just putting in enough that that it all made sense and that other people could follow the investigation. So it was very interesting to research. And they probably do have computer crime techies. Oh, yes. Yes, they would. They probably might not call them techies. <laughs> Some of them would. I'm sure they've got all sorts of nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that whole thing about um, making up a Facebook page and, mm. and having it go viral and yes. all the ugliness yeah. of some of the comments too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that's that's real world. It's other things that, you know, things like that I, did, I came across in my research too and it's distressing to see what some people will, will comment on, on an ongoing case. And you know, and also the jeopardy that that could you know mean to the to the outcome you know of, of actually finding the the victim safely and uh, you know a prosecution down the track too. So yeah. yeah, and it's really just who you know asking the right questions mm-hmm. to uh, possibly find a link or a little oh, that's bit right. of clue somewhere yes. to carry on. Yeah, and meanwhile, dead ends and oh. false leads and cold trails you oh, know look, it's all very is, real world you had me following is that oh yes 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 i know what's happening <laughs> nope <laughs> excellent i did my job well then <laughs> and um because i know you do research mm. this is there's a link to a historical case in dalesford yeah it's a part of the inspiration for this book actually was my husband and i love to visit dalesford on a regular basis and when we were staying in in the area one of those holidays we came across the three lost children monument in musk well that's when we first paid attention to it and then learned of the story of these three little boys that went off in search of adventure and sadly, they didn't make it home. That was 151 years ago. And then, and you know, several contemporary cases, you know, Jill Maher mm. and, you know, Bung Siraboon and others that we're, many of us would be aware of, they inspired me for the themes of the this, this dangers of cyber predators and a major missing children inquiry. And then from there, it was all imagination. Yeah. So three missing children, a wild storm and a long way from mm. home. A horrifying combination, but a very good read. Thank you. And that was Sandy Wallace and her book, Into the Folk. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. And, Jan, it's amazing what lengths individuals go to if their very survival is at stake. Now, Lily Wilkinson addresses this issue and the conduct of doomsday preppers in her latest novel, After the Lights Go Out. So, Lily, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. The attraction of doomsday preppers prepper-type backdrop? Well, I suppose for me um, it came from reading a New York Times article about doomsday preppers and it was something I didn't really know about. It was a subculture that I wasn't hugely familiar with. And I sort of I read this article about, you know, these, these people, usually Americans, they are predominantly Americans and also predominantly men, um, although not entirely, who believe that, you know, the inevitable collapse of society is upon us and that once it does happen, it is going to be every man for himself and that everybody must prepare. Um, there will be no support from the government. Your neighbours will turn on you. Everybody is going to be fighting and looting and chaos will reign. And so you have to have your own 
preparations. You have to have survival skills. You have to have a bunker in your backyard full of stuff. And I just found that fascinating. But also the possibility, I mean, we used to have it in our day with uh, nuclear mm. war, um, but there is a more modern uh, potential crisis. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Well, there's lots of modern potential crises, well, but I mean, like I'm not talking political, I, I, <laughs> but um, I mean, solar flares yeah. interfere with yeah, yeah. the yeah. Um, well, solar flares is actually very old, and that that uh, you know the Carrington event in the 1800s was a massive solar flare that really disrupted um, uh, telecommunications. Although in the 1800s, telecommunications were, was pretty rudimentary. Um, you know, it was it was not a massive problem. But if that happened today, you know. And against this backdrop, you've got the traditional, um, it's more than a coming-of-age story, but you've got a 17-year-old protagonist, mm-hmm. Prue, uh, trying, well, having to negotiate a crisis. And just to give you an idea of uh, who Prue is, uh, tell them what you can do. Well, there's no point keeping it a secret anymore. I take a deep breath. I can find water just about anywhere and make it drinkable. I can navigate by the stars. I can use a ham radio. I know about medicinal plants and plants you can eat and plants that are poisonous. I can light a fire in the rain without matches. I can pretty much make, um, I can make pretty much anything out of gaffer tape. I know about food canning and preserving. I can make cheese from powdered milk. I can dress wounds, set bones and do some emergency basic dentistry. I can fish and shoot a bow or a gun and I can skin and gut whatever I've caught. There's a long silence after I finish speaking. <laughs> How did she acquire all these skills? Um, via her extremely paranoid father, Rick. And and Rick is a doomsday prepper. He is convinced that, you know, everything, that, that SHTF, as they say in the, the prepper world, um, and that... So he has dragged his three daughters out into the middle of the Australian outback, um, built a bunker and has trained them in survival tactics. And the two other daughters are... Uh, uh, Grace and Blythe, who are twins. And they're twins, which raises some interesting uh, potential in Mm. this uh, story. And also the reason for that location in the outback. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the the preppers talk a lot about sort of the perfect place to have your... you know, your secret bunker. And and largely they believe that, like, the city is the absolute worst place to be if a disaster does happen because there'll be chaos, there'll be looting, there'll be violence. Um, so you need to be close enough to a small town that there are some basic services that you can, you know, that you can use before the disaster happens. Uh, of course, you need to be near fresh water. Um, but also you need to be far enough away from the cities that refugees won't come. And so that's why they they go out to the outback. So now let's get into some of the issues that are raised with this. There is a disaster Mm -hmm. that occurs and the readers can go in and find out for themselves what it is. Mm. Um, But it does raise some very distinct issues, um, which are very intriguing. Um, Sex is one. Yep. Survival and community uh, are other ones. Uh, And... There's another one about the nuance of relationships which comes out as well. Mm -hmm. So you've done some very intriguing things. So if you don't mind, let's start talking about sex. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Because there are things, it seems, that preppers, especially the male ones, haven't actually prepared for. Um, Well, first of all, I would just say that, like, I think that writing about sex in young adult fiction is really important um, because I think there are lots of ways that teenagers nowadays can come across very 
unhealthy depictions of relationships between people. And so I think that books provide a really great way of kind of exploring some of those ideas and also providing healthy models of, of sex and relationships. So that's why I try to put it in the books. But yeah, so Prue has been told by her dad that like, under no circumstances can you have sex in a disaster situation because you cannot risk a pregnancy because you know, pregnancy will only ever lead to disaster. We don't have medical facilities in this scenario. So that's, yeah, one of the things. Well, you you play on that because the first sexual encounter, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, so there is a love interest uh, for Peru, Mateo, who's someone from Puerto Rico. He's not from the town or even from Australia. Um, and, and, you know, things... Well, their very first encounter, uh, it goes horribly, horribly wrong, as I love to write. Um, I love writing an awkward kissing scene in a book um, because uh, it... Without too many spoilers, uh, Prue has anaphylaxis and Mateo ate a Snickers bar earlier. Um, and so that's, you know. But in the prepper scenario, mm. this is something that could be taken Absolutely. care of quickly uh, In if you're in uh, the real world, yeah. isolated. Yeah. These sorts of situations occur. You've also just got basic hygiene. I mean, mm. tampons, pads. Yeah. That's a, so at one point, Blythe, one of the sisters, you know, comes into Prue's room and she's like, do you have any more tampons? And she goes through her father's bunker, which has like years worth of food and supplies. But, you know, he's a man. So the one thing he totally forgot to pack was pads and tampons for his teenage daughters. Um, because that's another kind of thing you think about when you're thinking yeah, about the end of the world. Exactly. Um, and also then you've got um, someone giving birth as well. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of It'll happen. Yeah. Uh, so you you do address this whole uh, sexual backdrop, which mm-hmm. often yeah. the preppers hadn't even thought about. No. There's also another issue, basically the individual and the community yeah. that emerges. I don't want to sort of give too much away, but um, in the days of the nuclear holocaust, there was the game that was, well, of the, there are five people you can invite into your bunker. Who mm. would you invite? But you do explore this whole issue of the individual, which is what the prepper mentality is, and the community. Yeah, so one of the things that really fascinated me in that very first New York Times article I read about prepping is this this question of like of secrecy that the preppers always have to keep all of their supplies secret because they are convinced that if your neighbours knew, they would just come and take it from you. And I was like, are you okay with being that person? Are you okay with the person who has a bunker full of years worth of food buried in your backyard while you watch your next door neighbour's kids starve to death? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with being that person? And so I find that kind of that pessimism um, that is quite common. It's not all over the prepper community, but I find that really interesting. Well, there's the moral or ethical mm. foundation there as well. But in terms of survival, how do... Well, it's actually uh, raised. Survival isn't everything, um, says the uh, Peter Wu, who's the uh, chaplain in, in, the, in the town. Mm. Survival isn't everything, says Peter Wu, standing up to speak. What kind of people do we want to be? When we look back on this time, don't we want to remember our courage and honour and compassion? So when it comes to our definition of survival, what is it exactly? Yeah, well, that was something else that I thought about a lot. And I I like writing about grey areas. I I didn't want to say like, this is the right way to be and this is the wrong way to be. Um, But I think that that idea of like, is there any point surviving if, if all you're doing is surviving for you? Like and with nothing else, not building a community, not building a future, not trying to build a better world, is there really much point in that? And our survival as individuals depends on who we communicate with. Mm, exactly. We are nobody unless we're bouncing off somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. You've also got 
a really interesting nuanced relationship um, with the twins. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't the cliched, they can finish each other's sentences type of thing. But again, it's something for which preppers haven't uh, prepared or thought about. Mm. How much can you tell us about the twins here? Well, I'm very interested in twins. I'm an only child, so for me being a twin is like the opposite of being me. It's as far away as you can possibly get. And so I was really interested in the idea of there being like a more gregarious twin, which is Blythe, and a shyer twin, which is Grace, and, and kind of the dynamic, particularly as they become teenagers and as you become a, as you're a teenager, you, you become more independent. And so the, the idea that one of the twins is growing up and moving on and starting her own world and her own identity and the other one is getting left behind. But it raises then mm. that psychological development. Yeah. And no degree of preparation is going to predict how a child will behave, let alone a twin. Yeah, and definitely because they have both been brainwashed by their father um, to be extremely paranoid and it, it provides a lot of interesting opportunities for drama. Well, it does. And also then, um, the, there's the relationship with Matteo, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, Puerto Rican. Yeah. Now, the rationale for making him an outsider like that? Uh, two main reasons. One was because the the press subculture is such a largely American thing. I kind of wanted an American there to be able to sort of witness it, I suppose. And I like the idea of Puerto Rican because they are like American but not American. They are American citizens but they're outside of America and so they're sort of in this interesting liminal space. And so bringing someone in uh, to kind of understand the landscape and to, to understand what it is to be Australian and to be able to comment on how Australianness is different to Americanness in these sorts of scenarios was really useful and it also helps that I have a very close friend who is a Puerto Rican anthropologist who could help me with a lot of the cultural stuff. But then that begs the question of what culture you mm. want in your survival. Yeah. So one of the things that I did in my very early research was I went off and read this book called One Second After, which is a novel that like preppers love. It's like Newt Gingrich's favourite novel. And... Um, and it's, it's this very, very American. It tells a very, very similar story to my book, but all of the characters in it are like like painfully American and they're always like, damn it, Jim, I thought we were men. I thought we were Americans. And they're singing the national anthem and they're crying. And I was like, if this happened in Australia, no one is going to be singing the national anthem. Yeah. I mean, but, but that social conditioning mm. to believe that your society is the best society, that has to be preserved, yeah. whereas if the world blows up, well... Yeah, who cares? Who, well, who cares? But then what values do you want to bring forward all of those sorts yeah. of things you don't there's no time to or place for uh the culture of the past yeah. it would have to be totally reinvented definitely and i think that that's something that i'm really interested in is what are the what are the parts of our culture that we would want to preserve and what are the ones that we just hang on to because of this misguided idea of legacy mm. and you also then raise another interesting uh issue you quote theodore parker a minister an abolitionist called theodore parker once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It's certainly something that provides me with some consolation in these troubled times. In, but we, we always seem to be living in troubled times, so to speak. Yeah, but I think if we take steps back, like, it's it's easy to get really caught up in the now and say, oh my God, what's going on? This is terrible. But I think if we, if we take steps back, like, there's obvious... 
I think that we are moving towards moral justice, just sometimes we take some interesting wiggly pathways. Well, there's been the doomsday scenario for so long. I mean, the nuclear mm. holocaust um, and whether that's been averted. Uh, there was the whole, and it's been going on for, for uh, hundreds of years, the uh, loss of food. I mean, there was um, Soylent Green, if I remember yeah. right, the film. Yeah. Um, people were eating people. Mm. And, and all of these scenarios, we're going to run out of food or yeah. we're going to be blown up by a nuclear weapon. Or climate go- change. Climate. Well, climate change, that's real, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but people um, sort of then tend toward that mm. uh, destruction, yeah. the worst-case scenario. Yeah. And you've got to bring people to look forward, to look at the positive yeah. as well. So hopefully uh, this book, with the ambiguous title, After the Lights Go Out, mm. I mean, what happens after the lights go out? Well, we're not actually... Well, we are talking yeah. uh, both Yeah, yeah, in, in of, all senses of the phrase. In all senses of the <laughs> phrase. But you treat it... Uh, ingeniously, I think, in that regard, um, giving a new perspective to it. So, as I said, the book is After the Lights Go Out. The author, Lily Wilkinson, and it's an Alan and Unwin publication. Yes. And I was chatting with Sandy Wallace. Into the Fog is her latest uh, rural crime book, and it's taught press. So, that's it. For this week, but we'll be back again next week. Absolutely.